0: See, I'm not. I'm not an Apple person. They're just like... They're all over the place and they're convenient. Yeah, I don't have any preference. Um, but I did... I was just rejoicing and showing off my new acquisition of a five-year-old MacBook Air. And... uh I bought it used because the school got all new ones. That's why I bought an old one, five years old. So like, yeah, going, but going from that thing to my like HP is definitely like, I feel like I'm uh, gotta like get in my Flintstone car and that's the HP, the HP yeah, so which is only seven years old. So Alright, so let's we'll look at these prayers on the last page of the first communion rite. My favorite part is at the end here. But um, Yeah. Alright, so let's see. Last week we were talking about like kind of the whole church is actually involved in this. And so throughout all the rites, you're not really standing people up and, and telling them congratulations, now you're good, and you're on your own. Like, We're never just kicking you out there on your own. And instead, we're actually bringing you further into the church, surrounding you with more people who have actually pledged to take care of you and help you out. And it's a difficult thing for us to figure out how to do because it gets awkward when people don't hold up to their end of the bargain, either on on their end or our end you know so either way all of a sudden you're like ah okay well now what do I do that I haven't seen these people in church for three years and I said three years ago that I was going to actually like help them out so it's tough Uh, All right, so let's look at this prayer we'll look at the left hand count column they're the same prayer Heavenly Father, whose Son, Jesus Christ, loved the young and called them to himself. We ask you to bless these young people. So when you pray, this is always, you always have, uh, you address who you're talking to, dear whoever. And then you have a rationale for your prayer. Um, You loved the young people and called them to yourself. So we ask that you would do that same thing now. So that's, that's how you pray. Uh, you find things, you find promises, you find reasons why you would pray for something in particular. O oh Lord, who calmed the storms, you know? Lift this weather from us. Or I don't know, whatever it is, you know? So, it's, it's good. Uh, strengthen them in the faith through the sacrament of Christ's body and blood. So that they may grow spiritually and bring forth the fruits of faith and a life of love toward others to the praise and honor of your holy name. Now, in that prayer, who is who's doing the doing in all of that? The Father. Yeah, so that's the thing about the sacrament of the altar is that so many times we get like kind of hung up on what makes one worthy or whatever for this thing. But here with these, these kids, we're asking that they would be strengthened by the Father. Not that, like, they would, not that they would continue to stay here and all these things. We're actually putting it all on, on God. So it's an interesting move. Rather than praying that uh, these people would grow up and actually care about these things. We're asking that God would do this. I like it. It's not where I would initially go, yeah. You know? um, but yeah, that's what the sacrament of Christ's body and blood does. It actually strengthens you in faith uh, for God and in love towards others. Like you can't, you can't get away from that. Um, so, and then everyone says, "I'm in." We rejoice with thankful hearts in your confession of faith. As you continue to hear the Lord's word and receive his holy supper, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day, day of Jesus Christ. Peace be with you. Amen. And then, and I guess this is like re- why I really want to like show all these things to you guys, because there's all these like awesome little notes and rubrics in there. So then in the italics, the catechumens return to their seats. The service continues with the prayer of the church. And then, the catechumens receive the sacrament for the altar with the congregation in the usual order. Ugh. And everyone's thinking, like, well, well, why didn't they just get to like do it first in front of everyone when everyone was watching them? It, you kind of think that, right? This is their special day. Um Why wouldn't you do that? Or why would you do that, and why wouldn't you do it?
1: Well, communion. Communion.
0: Yeah, co? Yeah. Yeah, they're doing this with the whole entire church. It's awesome. So they go back, and they come up and receive communion with their families, when their families usually do it. I love it. We are admitting them into the usual order of the church. There is um, yeah it's again, it, this is not some sort of graduation, and this is not some sort of carrot that they're being given for having gone through X, y, and z steps. This is actually bringing them into the normal order of the church, so I think it 's wonderful. <laughs> I
1: wasn't the only one in class, but I was the only one that year. And there were like three other people who didn't understand, and just having like everyone watch it was
0: really like quiet. Yeah, it, was, it felt really weird. So there's a time for that, you know. Is that we do have the like the the examination and all that stuff? I think that's fine. You can feel weird but the lord 's Supper is not the time for that, you know um, yeah you're actually a part of this whole thing, and it doesn't revolve around you, it revolves around Jesus um, or even more than revolve around him right it's it is Jesus, yeah so um yeah it's it's a fantastic thing you
1: Every year we go through this. Confirmation rehearsal. They're seated here and they're gonna go as a confirmation class to communion before the congregation. And then a parent says, so wait a minute, I'd like them to come back to communion with So then the parents add. Then they rehearse. and finally it happens every year. Finally we send them back to the congregation and they come up with everything. Happens every year. It just makes me giggle every time it happens, it's like they haven't thought through this and yeah. Of course, there are 50, 60 kids. I mean, you know.
0: Some parishes, literally, the priests would ask most of the congregation not to come to that Mass because it's are so beautiful. Well, that was like, that's what it was like in my church growing up. Confirmation Sunday, you didn't go. Um, you, well, you went to the other service because you did not want to have to sit there for that whole thing. Again, your church is too big, you know, if you don't actually care about each one of those kids who's being confirmed and, and, and rejoicing in that, you know. Like, you're like, who are all these kids? I don't know. I'm not going. Um, so I, re- I feel like every once in a while we would, like, go to church and it would be Confirmation Sunday and it would have, like, caught us off guard and then you're just kind of stuck there forever because, you yeah. know. Because Lutherans in the Midwest are, like, Catholics everywhere else. There's, like, just tons of them. And um, so, yeah, it's, again, I think it's a good thing to have a church that is not so big that you can't remember everyone's name. That's a good thing. So, again, I think the size is, uh, like, 120 or so. That's what you want. So... Or how many fish was it? 153 in the net? 153? I think that's the uh, extreme largest you want your church to be. I think that's why. Yeah, because in the Gospel of John, they catch 153 fish in the net after Jesus' resurrection. And I think that that means that's the most people you want to have in your net in your church. Large ones. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so we had questions last week, and I have had questions about this too. How it came to be that confirmation, 7th and 8th grade confirmation, is like the gateway for receiving the Lord's Supper. Okay? Um, Because that is how it is in a lot of places still today. Um, so seventh and eighth grade confirmation and then receiving the Lord's Supper basically came to us uh, in the 19th and 18th centuries uh, in this country because you've got all these parochial schools and seventh and eighth grade is just kind of like a convenient thing. And while they're graduating from, from junior high, um, you also have confirmation and then give them the Lord's Supper. Um, confirmation I think 8th grade confirmation is not a terrible idea uh, but linking it with the reception of the Lord's Supper is I think particularly problematic Um, but they so there's also this idea that that's when you are it's linked to the time when you are first able to actually swear an oath so and that's an interesting thing to me And I don't know what that is in our country. When, well, when can you like get your own car loan? You can't even rent a car until after twenty five. Yeah. You can swear an oath at eighteen. You don't have to have someone cosign that, right? They let you in, you know. Yeah. Yeah, so it's connected with this like actually kind of coming into adulthood in the congregation and um yeah, being able to like uh, say things and declare things that have some permanent nature to them.
1: Again, tied to that age
0: Yeah, I think so. And I don't well you just open up another question then that I would have to look at is like uh where the where bar mitzvah ages come from? Because I don't know, but uh, and to see if that developed alongside what we have as confirmation in the Christian world, I don't know. I wonder what those corresponding things are, or if they're kind of independently developed rites of passage. I don't know. Because every I mean every every religion has this stuff, right? Every religion, every culture has rites of passage, no matter what it is. You know, it's like uh those like South American tribes where like they build that uh platform and then you like jump off of it with the rope tied to your feet, right? You know, you or you get with this uh, Sudanese congregation, like the all the men like still have this like ritual scarring that you get as a rite of age thing or I don't know, when, when women first have to go to the minstrel hut or whatever. I don't know. But every culture has these rites of passage, right? And this is like kind of what ours is. Did you have a question, Damien? Oh, um, speaking about American, South American, did Jesus really go into in America? No, he didn't. No, he didn't. He ascended into heaven uh, and has not... Been seen in the same way since. Yeah. It's an interesting question that the Mormons are trying to solve there. How about the salvation of all the Native Americans? Well, there's other ways to think about that, but him zapping over to earth after his ascension is not one of them. So, yeah.
1: That's what
0: they think. I know. That's how I know that. <laughs> I know what they think. It's a nice idea, but yeah. Um. So, anyways, here's some uh, just kind of a, basically a timeline on, bless you, on where this all comes from, um, because again we don't we don't see particularly confirmation in the in the scriptures, you know. Um, we do see in, in 1 Corinthians the ability to discern the body is a thing that we want to think about. And then we also do uh, rejoice when people make the good confession, right? So there are these things. It is a good thing to confess your faith. Of course it is. It's a good thing to learn your faith, to be taught your faith, which, by the way, like, never ends. And that's my, like, ooh, that's my, like, big icky thing with confirmation is that that's when we like give you the stamp and say you're done and uh, we're not done this, we're expecting you to stick around for forever so the rest of your life um, so confirmation here we go notes on the history of confirmation this comes from an article that was in Concordia Theological Quarterly So a lot of people have had these questions and have done the legwork on it. Um, So confirmation first appears in the Council of Ries, 439, the Council of Orange, in 529. So they were having all these problems that there were these bishops who had been illegally ordained. Um, But then they were like, well... Well, we'll still let you do confirmations because it appears that what you're teaching is still okay even though you have this illicit ordination, okay? Um, back in the day, do you know what you had to do to be ordained as a pastor? presbyter? Yeah, you got to have hands laid on you by three other guys, right? So if you can't find three other three other uh, bishops to lay hands on you and you can't be one. You know? It's kind of nice. Um, so this is how you know that the guy is not just some self-appointed dude who wants to wear a fancy hat because a bunch of other dudes signed off on him. Okay, um, And this is how you get pastors still today. right? Do I get to be a pastor just because I want to be a pastor? Now, Now, I can move down the church and, like, move down the street and set up, you know, my own, I don't know, whatever you want to call it, but um, even my friend down at Radiant Church uh, was ordained by other pastors, like, so they're like, you know, we'll sign off on this guy. Um so you don't want self-appointed pastors. You want people that have actually received the office from people who have it. Um, three of them. So they find these guys who've been illegally ordained. They didn't do it right. They kind of snuck into the office, all right? So you think about this around 539 and 529. I mean, this is kind of the world is falling apart. Um, Rome. Does anyone remember what's the at that date when Rome fell? There is one date for it, even though it was just kind of a long fall, a decline. I know Pastor Golinski has this on the tip of his tongue. Historian
1: uh, uh, Edward Gibbard
0: selected 476. Okay, 476, great. Um, but anyways, the world is like falling apart, and the only dependable thing you have in the world is the church, okay? So the governments are like just... it's out of control. But the church, though, actually transcends governments, still does today, uh, and it is actually all over the world. And so if you want to actually get into some sort of solid, reputable thing, then you'll become part of the clergy. Um, So, The clergy have always been a different class than than everyone else. Um, So you get these guys, and you kind of do it's a safe thing. It's a respectable thing to to be a, a priest or a bishop. So it, the first mentions that we have it are not like telling people to do it. They're saying like, well, these guys are using confirmation, but they're not doing it right. But it appears that they're still using the, the words. So we'll just we'll let them do it. Um, so uh, point two, baptism, chrism, and Eucharist were originally given together at the Easter Vigil. Um, so normally what you do now I've talked about this a little bit before uh, at the Easter Vigil there's there are several steps to it you bring them in uh, and you actually so I've talked about people being baptized naked you actually strip them before the baptism like take off all the stuff from the outside and then you baptize them and then you bring them up then you anoint them and then you clothe them um, uh, so, But these things are always connected. It's like for a long time, because remember we talked about this too, is that the 40 days of Lent are meant to prepare someone for baptism, also this chrismation, the anointing, and also to receive the Lord's Supper. So you don't find people that are being baptized and then just like kind of kept around for a long time and then communed. You're doing all these things together. Uh, at this time. But they are all, they're all actually linked. Uh, You have to have them all together. Baptism, the anointing, and the Eucharist. Um, So there's, yeah, you anoint them before the baptism, you anoint them during it, and then you anoint them afterwards as well. So, uh, yeah, and again, the three different kind of oils, um, they're I saw the the, the vats of oil at that Catholic place I was at in Kansas, Um, but uh, yeah, that's there for these different times, and you anoint people. um, I actually, it's supposed to be on the head, the ears, and the breast. So you anoint them in the sign of the holy cross too. So it's kind of cool. Your ears. Well, you saw you that was in the psalm, that psalm. It wasn't in the, the gradual, but the, Psalm 133, right? The, how good it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good is it? Well, it's like the oil running down the beard of Aaron onto the collar of his robe. So much oil. So, um, yeah, it's 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 good. So uh, these things were they were always given together right now, the other thing too is that remember during this time we 're also still baptizing lots and lots and lots of grown ups okay, but at the same time, uh, children still would be baptized, anointed, and communed. This is all given together right um, i i didn 't write this down, but that continued to be the practice in England, um, and like Henry the children were baptized, anointed, and then communed as infants. It was something that they kind of just like kept for the royals, which is kind of weird to me, but um, it makes sense. So, all right. So then, uh, third point: in the seventh century. Presbyters. What's a presbyter? You should all know this. It's the Bible's way of saying pastor. So presbyter. So there's always been like three ranks in the clergy. There's deacons, presbyters, and bishops. And these are just Greek words. Um, so presbyter, like I'm a presbyter. Uh, it's from it's one of the ways that we get the word priest, is from presbyter, so um, it just means elder too. The elders, when you see the New Testament talk about the elders, it's talking about the presbyters. That's the word in the Greek. Um, it's where you get the word Presbyterian for the Presbyterian Church. Um, they don't call their their pastors pastors; they call them elders because of that. So it came along in the seventh century that the presbyters were no longer. Allowed uh, to do confirming uh, instead the bishop had to come around and do this, okay but there were some cases where they said, Well, okay, if you have the oil that's blessed by the bishop, then you can do the confirmation. now, can you kind of see like how things are getting a little weird here because it's becoming more about if you've got the guy with the pointy hat coming around to do this rather than like what gifts is Christ specifically giving? And now they all thought, too, that the actual oil of anointing was giving spiritual gifts, too. Like, that was a thing. The oil is actually conferring something to these people. I I have a hard time wrapping my head around that. I believe it about uh, the elements in the Lord's Supper and in Holy Baptism. Um, I mean, that's hard enough to believe on its own, isn't it? Uh, but... If you add in oil, I'm like, I don't know about this stuff. But um, there it is. So then four, I guess we're going to jump a long way here. Uh, The Council of Trent. The Council of Trent is... So after the Reformation, after Luther comes along, the Council of Trent gets together. The Catholic Church gets together and says, what are we going to do with all this Protestant stuff? And they basically get together... And we thought that we were going to be able to talk about all this stuff with them. Be like, hey, see, um, we had some questions, and then like uh, we talked about it. And then everything got better, didn't it? But it didn't go that way. Instead, they get together and basically condemn everything that the Reformers were teaching. And in fact, uh, condemn us. Ooh. It, when you read the Council of Trent, it's 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 actually shocking because he goes they go through and like list off all these things and then at the end of them all they're like let them be anathema,
1: Ooh,
0: cursed. You're like, uh, okay, so justification by faith through grace alone. If you believe that, you're cursed. Like, actually, that's the one way that I'm not cursed. You know, um, so it, what. What Trent does is it makes confirmation almost greater than baptism. Uh, Pope Urban comes along and says, "Well, the faithful must be confirmed, or they are not full Christians." Now, when are you, when are you made a full Christian? In your, in your baptism, like, confirmation is not like it's not adding to anything. It's not contributing to your salvation. that's. That's in the bag, okay? Uh, it is not completing your baptism. It is not. like It's not like you get half of it then and then we give you the rest of it later. It's all or nothing. Uh, so Luther has a couple of thoughts on this. I, and I put the German words in there because they're so fantastic. He says uh, that the confirmation is offenspiel. Monkey business. <laughs> or Lügenstein fanciful deception or galgal work is that is that a stop on the organ isn't it no, galgalwerk <laughs> oh work. Uh, mumbo jumbo uh, so he, he's like what is this like we're just making stuff up here you know anyway like you shouldn't be making stuff up in church you want to come here and know that we 're not making anything up. I gave to you what i received right that 's it i 'm not making anything up so it's uh, but as we 've seen before he he thinks this is crazy so but what, as we 've seen though, he favors examining children, teaching children um, before communion. So no one has ever been like, well, yeah, we just like let everyone up because like they're here. Well, no, we we actually take care of these ch- children and and teach them and examine them, of course. You know? Yeah, I mean that's just what you do. So point six: a man named Martin Butzer, uh, who is not Lutheran. He is. Uh, He's a reformed reformer. So uh, the reformed church, he's basically making a, a, a halfway point between Calvin and Zwingli. Um, and this is, this is what a lot of kind of American Protestants are going to be. All right. Um, It's something called Arminianism, basically, although it wouldn't be technically that, because I think Arminius came along a little bit later. But Butzer was kind of a pre-Calvinist, I guess. Uh, And again, the whole whole mechanism of salvation here with these guys is that you've got to make the decision for Jesus, right? Um, And... And you can understand where this comes from, right? Because for so long in the Catholic Church, all they've been told is just like, well, yeah, just go to that church and look at the host, and that's it, you're in. Or, yeah, go to, go to the church and pay the money, and you're in. Um, yeah, so last week on November 2nd, November 2nd is All Souls Day, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I follow these, like, real Catholics on Instagram and uh they're like posting all this stuff about indulgences that you can get and on all souls day and like go to the cemetery and pray and because the problem with purgatory is that like when you go to purgatory you can't do anything to get yourself out you have to wait for like your grandkids and stuff to like pray your way out of purgatory and it's like exactly like Every once in a while, I think like, well, maybe the Reformation is like good. Maybe we just like did it, and we just go back to the Catholic Church now. But then, like, you follow them on Instagram, and or if you subscribe to certain magazines, you get Catholic junk mail, and you're like, oh no, they actually still believe a good amount of the stuff that we were fighting uh, 500 years ago about how you free people from an imaginary place. Like, this is bizarre, you know. Um, But, anyways, it's it's. So, I yeah. I mean, I can understand how people come along. and They're like, "Well, you've been telling us all we got to do is just like get splashed and look at a host, and that's good." Well, of course not. There's got to be something more to that. So they can like, "Well, of course we got to make a decision for Jesus." Of course. You know, Lutheranism, like, we 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 take the the middle ground behind between all this which is the actual, like, the only ground. Um, we're like, well, well, no, you don't decide for Jesus. He actually decides for you, and, and this is wonderful. You know? And it doesn't make any sense to us because it's not how things work most of the time. So anyways, Martin Bucer is, is, he is a, a kind of a pre-Calvinist Calvinist. Uh, he introduces Confirmation in 1538 in Hesse, Uh, requiring oaths to be taken for the Holy Church. Uh, Butzer was a Reformed theologian who lived in Strasbourg, France, uh, which sometimes is Germany too, goes back and forth, and was later exiled to England, where he helped compile the Book of Common Prayer. And the rite was the completion of catechetical studies and the gateway to communion. So that's where we really have like the first solid... Um, you're done with catechesis, and now you can take communion, all right? So, uh, point seven: Philip Spainer is he's is the godfather of what we know as pietism. Pietism is this idea that like your salvation hinges upon your like subjective experience, okay of the gospel. And again, this is like what most of American Christianity is, too. How do I know if a church service was good? It, felt
1: so good?
0: it felt so good. It made me feel good. So I have the good feelings. All right? So salvation is essentially dependent upon your feelings. Which, as we've been talking about, what if like, we lost like 400 hours of sunlight in the past month and we don't feel anything today? What if I've been in the fog for a week and I don't know which way is up? Can I be saved even? No, you cannot. You must be it's this equi- like the, the, this like equivalence of like being happy with being saved. you know It's like, well, that's not the way it works, you know. Uh, Jesus Christ dying on the cross. it's like, well, let's talk about that, you know um, that's real you know that's all sorts of yeah so anyway so um but you can kind of see how you would want to extract these promises from these children these real commitments um so pietism is really pushing for this so uh, phil spainer is again the father of this pietism by the way is not all bad there are many good things with pietism Pietism is why we insist on like having Bible study. Uh, like in Luther's day, they were not doing Bible study like we do. They were not sitting around and just reading through the Bible together and studying it and saying like, "Well, this is what this means." Um, would be a lot after his two-hour sermon. It would be a lot after a two-hour sermon. Yeah. So his sermons are a lot of kind of what we call expository preaching, though, where you would go through the text and just kind of tell you what each line means and everything. But but this idea that you just, like, sit around a table and read the Bible and talk about it to each other, like, that didn't exist. Uh, and that does come from pietism. And and it's fine. It's good, right? Yes? Do
1: you want to be like Luther?
0: Do I want to be like Luther? There are many admirable uh, characteristics of his... I think he would have been uh, fun to hang around. He's a cool guy. Yeah. I won't... I can't be like Luther, though. He's way too smart. So... The problem with Lutheran pastors is we all think that we're Martin Luther, but none of us have actually done, like, the legwork to get, like... Yeah. So... the entire Bible. Yeah, well, things like memorizing the Bible
1: yeah um, yeah
0: right they didn't have Bibles like we have Bibles today right they are around but they're not you're not finding stacks of of mass printed Bibles where you can just tell someone which page number to go to yeah yeah So the image of Luther is always um, him unchaining the Bible, but why did they have the Bible chained up? Well, because it was super valuable, and you don't want people walking off with it. I mean, it took thousands of hours to make that thing. You're not just going to be like... Again, like I was saying, if I loan a book to someone, and six years later, I don't know where it is, like, I can just go on Amazon and buy it for 20 bucks, you know? Like, that it, didn't, it was not like that with the scriptures. They were valuable. And now, now they're almost disposable, right? Well, we do dispose of the scriptures every week, don't we? Yeah. So, um, well, that's interesting. I wonder if the growth of pietism and this emphasis on like reading the Bible yourself is linked to the greater av- availability. Um, so Bibles, with the Gutenberg press, they were still super expensive. Yeah. Like, not everyone just got to have these things. But uh, there were lots and lots of things being printed, especially with like small catechism. Um, I never thought about that, but, uh, yeah, technology does influence the faith of people. Isn't that weird? Careful. <laughs> um, so... Um, yes, here we go. So, Philip Spener and Pietism gradually push the age higher into the teenage years. There's more emphasis of in their own words rather than in recitation of texts. There's efforts to bring holy tears from the children. Okay. This is where, like, the expression uh, the holy rollers, you know, comes from. Or people who are literally rolling around during a church service. Or... Again, this is like what uh, drives me up the wall when people talk about a spirit-filled service being one where like people are running around and hollering and things like this. Um, it's not. It's not an accurate gauge. I'm not saying that's not spirit-filled, but you can have a room full of of people muddling through, you know, some 19 verse hymn that no one likes and. Hearing a lackluster sermon, but still receiving the body and blood of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of their sins, and that there as a spirit-filled sermon uh, service, you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, if 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 Spener and the Pietists would have had fog machines and laser shows, they like, they would have. Oh yeah, they would have been all over that. Although it might have been too fancy, they don't like fancy stuff though. Uh, Franca. In 1727, then gets rid of the creeds altogether from confirmation. So, uh, I don't know. I forgot to look up where he was. Uh, and a is German. A lot of this is happening in Germany, um, but it, it's, yeah, it's, but you can see this, right? It's. Yeah, you want them to be able to put this into their own words at the expense of the text. okay? Um again, yeah, like so what are the texts we're talking about in the small catechism? It's I mean, I don't know how anyone could be against this. Like we want kids to learn the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer, and then uh holy baptism, holy absolution and, and the Lord's Supper. Like, who could be against this stuff? This is just like the Bible. Like shoo distilled down um, I mean yeah would i rather have my children know the 10 commandments or know the meaning of the 10 commandments Yeah these things like are not against one another right I would i want them to know the 10 commandments uh, and I want them to know Yeah yes it's so um Yeah, and and I'm not interested if they actually like if this brings them to tears. But there are people who know that basically these Ten Commandments that have no idea what that means. Yeah, people who think that you can do things because they're not listed in the Ten Commandments.
1: Or people who say, Well isn't this one of your commandments?
0: Yeah. yeah well, and this is Luther in the preface to the Small Catechism or large ah, It's just like the kids like don't allow your kids to eat unless they 've uh, recited the Ten Commandments, Lord 's Prayer and Apostles Creed. Just learn them you know? uh, The problem with the way that at least that we did memorization when I was a kid was that it was done in such a way that I could memorize something very quickly. You know, four seconds before yeah. class, right? I don't know how you make these things stick. I know music has a lot to do with it. Do it every day. I do it every day. Um, yeah, because because I've had Eagles being stuck in my head for 25 years. You know. <laughs>
1: now you have a that conversation. All right? we done with that conversation? I can't.
0: Okay, we're done. I can't. Brainwashed. <laughs> Um, so, we go on then, rationalism, what's rationalism? You guys should all be like shaking in your boots right now. So rationalism, just the idea that like we only do things based on reason and logic, okay? Now reason and logic are not bad things, of course, but the idea that like your salvation comes along through these things though, this is, it's absolutely, uh, Opposite of what we believe about how God does these things, right? Because we believe that we cannot by our own reason or strength come to Christ or believe in Him. Hmm. But the Holy Spirit calls and enlightens us. So, um, rationalism introduces extensive tests and extravagant celebrations. This is when people start wearing, like, the. Uh, gowns and special things uh, and they start having like big old parties about this Um, yeah and there's this quote know this day is really your true baptismal day Mm. someday we'll get there we're working on it Uh, Schleiermacher again and this this will keep you up at night this guy Confirmation is the second half of baptism. Ugh. I mean, because what's the problem with baptism? Baptize you as a baby, and then what? You obviously have to do something
1: else. Well, you have to
0: do something, don't you? Right? Don't you have to do something? Make sure it worked. Make sure it worked. How do you know if your baptism worked? (laughs) You feel good about it? No, well, you'll know when you were raised from the dead on the last day. Like, that's. Well,
1: even if you were baptized under the age of accountability, you might
0: still get baptized. I mean, you probably would still get baptized more times. When you. So. If you're a person who goes to a
1: church where you you get baptized on year 13 or whatever, you'll probably need it then. you might
0: send a whole bunch of it right now. Yeah, if your parents wait to baptize you until you can decide to do it. I mean, that's what I I don't really get because the re baptizers, it's like, how many times is enough? And what sins do I have to commit that are big enough? And all of a sudden you're asking, really. You're asking questions that are asking like whether or not God can actually save you, if you're a real sinner. We can, like, and He did, and your baby, and He did it anyway. So it was like, yep, gotcha. Um, Yeah. that's That's rationalism. Rationalism is if I turn away. Will God also turn away from me? Don't I have to get Him to turn back to me? Well, no. Uh, nine, emphasis on the age of discretion is an influence of scholasticism, Pietism, and rationalism. Again, like I don't want to give you guys too many nightmares, but there it is. Like that's where this comes from. Um, so here's a. Here, this is from uh, Wilhelm Lea, who amazing guy. He was a pastor in this little town in Germany. Uh, he was kind of always like the black sheep, and he got sent out to this little town, Neuen-Dettelslau in Germany, and just like had a huge impact on the American church. He started the modern deaconess movement, and uh, he trained all these guys that then like got sent over to America. That's amazing. I just can't even imagine it. It's... I mean, I got sent to North Carolina, and that was even like, wow, what a big deal. But getting sent from Germany to... They all went to, like, uh, the upper Midwest, uh, to Michigan. And um, By the way, did you know that uh, the Small Catechism was the first book to be translated into a Native American language? Did you know that? Yeah. So all these, like, missionaries, it's really remarkable. They go up into, like... Uh, again Michigan and Indiana and basically like learn the native languages and evangelize them and like start churches there and it doesn't like really work but it's amazing they didn't that they didn't go and make the I can't remember what tribes it is in Michigan but they didn't go there and make them learn English or German they learned their language um I just it just floors me. But anyways, Leo is this guy. He never left his little town there, but had such an influence on the the church in in our country. Uh here's what he says about this. This is um the agenda that he puts together. When children have arrived at an understanding of the catechism that they can examine themselves according to the command of the holy apostle 1 Corinthians 11:28 then they should no longer be restrained from partaking of the lord's supper of the holy supper not knowledge attained at school but an understanding of the catechism shall be decisive this does not mean that a high degree of knowledge of the catechism is essential but rather the minimum essentials necessary for self-examination admission to the examination should not be determined by a specified age not age but the required ability of 1 corinthians 11:28 to examine oneself is to be decisive in every case. Uh, I just wanna read that for us, First Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. When a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Yeah. I mean that really is like the the rubric, isn't it? So, and that's, like, we're not asking little kids to have the same understanding that a 37-year-old man has, right? Um, can they examine themselves? Do they understand what's going on here? And it's, yeah, it'll be a way different way than, than, than I understand it. Um, but, I, yeah, I think it's a good, I think that's, like, a good r- rule. And, again, the thing about having it at 7th or 8th grade It's comfortable for us, right? It looks like you're never playing favorites. You can't be accused of like, oh, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're treating these people better or differently, you know. Um, But then you also get questions like, okay, so what do you do with the kid who gets like 100% on the confirmation exam, and then the kid who gets like 49% on the Confirmation test. In you know, my church, you could take it again, but then what if you didn't get it another time? Are they going to hold people back? Ooh. Just tying it to a specific age for being admitted to the Lord's Supper is a very strange thing. And um, again, I think specifically the influence of pietism and rationalism. The idea that God can only act if we are really heartfelt about it. Just um, Whatever the case, we must let the word of God dwell in us richly, Colossians 3.16. And the 12, baptism, confirmation, and communion must never be seen as being in opposition, but all giving the same gifts. So they're not against one another. Right? And sometimes you can treat them like they are. You know, like your confirmation. If you're not confirmed, then that negates your your baptism. You know. Um, yeah. So we'll start looking. I think at the confirmation right next week. But any uh, any comments or questions about this? Again, this is kind of taken from a larger article. And then there's also I mean there's seriously like tons of people who have who have researched and written on this. Yeah.
1: Did it look, like what did it look like compared to what we have today? Because I mean, we to figure out like what it seems like we've adopted a lot of these things that maybe we shouldn't have adopted that were
0: influenced by other denominations that maybe like well, it's it's scarier, like, it's not other denominations, it's other ways of thinking. Right. Yeah. Um, so, honestly, this is why the questions in the confirmation rite look very similar to the questions in the baptismal rite. Because it is the same thing. Like, they weren't taking them into baptism and then asking them another set of questions after they come up out of the water. Like, it's all there, uh, it's all there before. Uh when they're when they're asking them all these questions. So what does it look like? It looks essentially like what we have in in the baptismal rite already. So.
1: so it seems like confirmation should then actually be like eighteen or something like that. Something when you are going going out to like make decisions for yourself and make Yeah. Of life for yourself or whatever. Especially in our we where our, our eighth graders don't have the
0: same maturity as eighth graders 100 years ago, Like, they look completely different in maturity wise. Yeah, I mean, eighth graders back then are like getting to work in the field and starting families. Right. Well, this is a, I mean, it's a, I was thinking about this too with the whole problem of uh, prolonged adolescence. Um... You know, this whole thing that we don't, we don't actually, we don't allow kids to, like, grow up until they're, like, 30 years old now or something, you know? Uh, and you 40. children who
1: don't have a, a youth in the family like my grandparents
0: would have. Thought. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, I, was I 24 when we got married? I think that, like, Don't ever ask questions like that. That immediately off the top of your head it was still like shocking you know like, oh you can't do that you'll ruin your life like what life was I like headed for anyways uh, they, had this, they had this idea that like your life is not actually about like starting a household there's something else there yeah. it's it's weird I mean, what? You just want to be selfish and greedy your whole life? That's the idea. Yeah.
1: I guess if you think, okay, a 14, so we're asking a 14 year old to tell the whole church that they'll die for faith.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: And we don't ask them. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm unsure. Like, that is too, too young to say
0: that. I know. Like, I don't. That's the thing. The questions that we actually ask people during their confirmation, to me, don't seem like questions that a 14-year-old can really answer truthfully. Maybe 16? When they can start driving? Because then you're like, oh, well, okay, they're out there, like, actually saying they're going to use their turn signal, because they might kill people if they don't. But, yeah, see, that's the whole thing. It's so tricky. But I think that kind of unleashing it from... Because everyone knows. Everyone's like, we got to give these kids the Lord's Supper. We have to. And you find that, and that's what Luther was saying. Um, was like, it's irresponsible for us to withhold it from these kids who actually are understanding what's going on, who believe this, and who want the body and blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. And they're here every week. You're like... No, because you're 10. I think that's how you make Jesus angry. Let the little children come to me. That's what our prayer is Christ who loved the young and called them to himself. So, again, yeah, I, I think though that we push confirmation back, take longer with it. But, like, admit kids to the altar when they. When they're ready. And again it's it's challenging because kids who are here every week and understand these things are gonna have a much different understanding of it than the kids who like um, haven't been here since they were baptized, you know. Well if you connect it to Passover, I mean Passover was a family meal and all the family members are around the table and mm. the youngest child was the one who asked the question. Yeah. What makes this night different from all other nights, Father? Exactly. <laughs> and then they sing the song, and, yeah. uh, yeah.
1: So if this is my body and blood, which connects back to the Passover, then yes, you're, you're. Right. Yeah. Okay. Well, so. And if Luther thought that confirmation was ridiculous, like, I mean, it's a kid.
0: Oh, yeah. So, it, well, this, in here's connection
1: the thing. In general or in connection with the
0: what like, they, they were doing.
1: A con- a, a at some point? Should, I
0: should think there should be.
1: Oh, yeah. And I will never leave you.
0: Yes. Right, yeah. um, and here's the deal we're going to need more people like that in this world, too, because. The world's not gonna be any easier for you, right? I was listening to something about the um, the fall of the the church in Czechoslovakia when the communists took over. I mean what what's the first thing they do? They outlaw the churches. So, okay, what are you gonna do when they close our church down? Then what do you do? Like, well, ideally everyone's ready to deal with this because we've already set up all these like resistance cells and we have people who are willing to die for this and like they're gonna like oh okay well well yeah we know what to do we've been prepared for this all along and so yeah we want to like actually have people enlisted in the the army here too you know army the church um Well, yeah, that's the thing. It worked, like it worked, and there's there's this one Jesuit priest who saw it coming, and he was all like, and he actually was very intentional about this, and uh, yeah, he was like, oh, we got to prepare for this, and then it happened, and everyone told me it was crazy. And I'm like, come on, they're never going to close the churches, and then it happened, and then and then they were like, okay, here we go. Yeah, and then you open up the country, and it turns out that they did it. <laughs> so um, we had uh, the the story of the the uh, Siberian Lutheran Church. It's kind of similar. They got shut down, of course, by the communists, and then uh, when they opened back up, like there's this uh, the current bishop of the Siberian Lutheran Church. Like, goes into this one town, and like, there's some like babushka with like 20 grandchildren, and she's like, We've been waiting for you to come baptize these children. Uh, we've been teaching them. are like, Oh, okay. <laughs> you just get back to it. It's, it's fantastic. So, um, yeah, any, any questions about this? It's tough stuff, you know? Uh, it's really tough. So, and, the, and the thing about like joining the army is like you don't get to just quit either, right? Like.
1: You don't just get to quit.
0: In the army, no. And what they do with deserters? Yeah. What? Shoot them. Yeah. <laughs> you don't get to just quit the army. It's not like working at the grocery store.
1: Yeah, you must be discharged.
0: Yeah. Yeah, you don't. Yeah, it doesn't work like that. Yeah, they know that, don't you know. So, um, well, thanks, and we'll get on. Well, yeah, I think we'll actually start looking at the confirmation right next week. So, uh, let us pray, Lord. You have indeed come into our world and uh, baptized us and made us your own. We pray that we would ever be faithful as you are faithful towards us. Uh, We pray for all those who indeed uh, have been confirmed and pray that uh, we would be faithful in these vows and oaths that we have taken, to be faithful even unto death. Uh, Bless our world and our uh, country. Uh, Calm any fears and let your peace dwell here. Uh, We give thanks for everything that you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everyone.